Well, I welcome you again in Jesus' beautiful name. I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well and invite you all to join me at Luke 4, Luke chapter 4. It's really good to see you all again. I missed you last week, last Sunday. Um, Very thankful to be back with you. Our goal at Prairie Hill is to become more uh, mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our Christ-like maturity uh, day by day, week by week. We want to be more aligned with his kingdom, uh, more aligned next Sunday than we are today. And we've just come to the Gospel of Luke asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? We're really starting at square one and just learning it all over again. What is this kingdom that Jesus comes preaching about and invites us to? And so we're just taking small bits at a time, passage by passage, week by week, to be more and more aligned with the kingdom of God and trusting in the power of the scriptures to cause that transformation in our lives. That's our goal. And today we have the temptation passage before us in Luke 4, passage where Jesus is tempted. Most of you have as a heading in your Bible the temptation of Jesus over this section. I'm calling the sermon the success of Jesus rather than the temptation of Jesus uh, for reasons that uh, will become obvious as we go. Here are our goals for today, okay? If you're willing to invest a few minutes with me, I want us all to go home with these three things having been accomplished, okay? Knowing these three things. First of all, this temptation passage, Jesus in the wilderness with the devil, I I want us to know what it's not and then what it is and what it means for us today, okay? The temptation passage, what is it not And then what is it, and what does it mean? What does it mean for me and you today? Hopefully, and Lord willing, and Holy Spirit guiding, we'll all be able to go home being able to answer those things, all right? Let's read the text, verses 1 through 15, Luke 4, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text, all right? Now, if you're able to, let's stand, shall we, in honor of God and his word. This is his word from Luke 4. Remember, um, Jesus has just been baptized, and this is what, after the, um, the genealogy, this is what we read next, Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, 
It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. This is the only time in uh, scripture where Satan quotes scripture. This is from Psalm 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Heavenly Father, your son said, follow me. We want to follow him and to know what that means in all of its fullness. With all of the difficulty attended to it and with all of the joy, we want to know all of what it means to follow your son. So help us, Father, to understand Understand what this text means and use this time to help us follow Jesus. For we ask in his holy and wonderful name, amen. Please be seated. All right, well, first of all, let's talk about what this passage is not, okay? Let's talk first about what the passage is not. As much as we might want it to be, this passage is not a playbook for how to handle temptation. It is not a how-to manual for what to do when we're tempted and how to respond to it. Now, it would be very easy to take it that way. It would go something like this. Hey, when, when I'm tempted, when we're tempted by whatever it is that tempts us toward evil, okay, picture yourself being in that moment, being tempted by whatever it is that tempts you toward evil, toward sin, that the way to handle that temptation is to do what we see Jesus do here. So the thought process can go like this. When I'm tempted, perhaps it's as simple as quoting a Bible verse, and that will end the temptation. You know, we see that Jesus withstands the temptation. He doesn't give in. And it happens, he quotes Bible verses and, it, and he doesn't give in. And we might think, that's the formula for me to resist temptation. All this time it's been right here. If I say these three verses, the temptation will be over and I won't sin. And let's face it, we're really, really eager to know how to handle temptation, aren't we? There are some of us that would pay a lot A lot of money to have an answer to that question. How do I resist temptation? Is this it? Is this the playbook to use? I think that's a great question. And here's what I would say in response to that question. Two things. First of all, it's not wrong for us to employ these methods when we're tempted. It's not wrong to battle temptation with scripture. That's actually a really good idea. It's, it's a really good idea to always have the scriptures 
on our minds, in our hearts, on our lips throughout the day, whether we're being tempted or not. That's always a good idea. So it's not wrong to battle temptation the way that we see Jesus do battle here. But here's the second thing. If we think that's the purpose of this account, to show us how to handle temptation, we have missed the author's intent. We have missed the divine and the human author's intent. It's not meant to be a playbook for what we should try. Now, could that be a secondary purpose? In a secondary application of the passage, sure. All I'm saying is that it's not the primary meaning or application of the passage. Its primary purpose is not to be a how-to manual. Okay, well, if that's, if that's not what it's meant to be, if it's not a playbook, then what is it? Let's talk about what the passage is, okay? Very simply, here it is. The passage is Jesus reliving the wilderness experience of Israel. And succeeding where they failed. That's what's happening here. That's why the account is here. Luke is showing us that Jesus is reliving the wilderness experience of Israel. The nation of Israel. And he is succeeding where they failed. That's what's happening. If you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad that you're beginning to become a learner. The, the, what you need to know to kind of have the context for this is that the failures of Israel um, in the wilderness were, were huge and plentiful. We're talking about the time that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of slavery after all those years through the hand of Moses, with the leadership of Moses, was giving them a new land, the promised land, to live in. But their faith in God failed through that wilderness journey to get there, and they ended up wandering out there for 40 years. And there were lots and lots of problems along the way, and we're going to talk about some of the most prominent failures in just a minute. Right now, we're just making the high-level observation that the main purpose of this account is to show how Jesus was successful where the nation of Israel was not. Okay, Now, this is really important. When, when a preacher makes a claim like that, he better be able to back it up and say why we know that's the primary purpose. Okay, How do I know? What's the evidence? These four things. These are the four big clues in the passage that this is what's happening. Okay, first of all, the location. This is the easiest one to spot. Verse 1, Jesus is in the wilderness. Just like the nation of Israel was in the wilderness. The location. Secondly, also pretty easy to spot, is that Israel wandered for 40 years. And the parallel here is that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. That's a significant number. And another clue that we're to read this passage in light of the 40-year wandering. So we've got the location, the duration. Third, this is my favorite one. So excited because it's something that 
I saw this week that I had never seen before. Don't you love that when that happens and you read this passage that you've been reading all these years and you've never seen this and it's right there in front of you. The third thing is the direction. Location, duration, direction. Okay, I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is a significant clue. Look at verse 1. Notice that according to verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. That's the wording. Led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Okay? Not, it's not led into the wilderness, but led in the wilderness. What's the difference? Well, it's the difference between your mom and your dad dropping you off at the mall and them taking you to the mall and walking around with you and leading you from store to store, as uncomfortable as that might be, okay? That's the difference here. The Holy Spirit did not lead Jesus into the wilderness and drop him off there. That's the way that I'd always read the passage. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness and just dropped him off and left him out there to find his way around. That's not the idea. Now, to be fair, Matthew's account, if you read the same account in Matthew and in Mark, their accounts do read into the wilderness. But Luke goes a bit further and lets us know that Jesus was actually being led by the Spirit while he was in the wilderness. God's presence was with him to lead him. In the New American Standard Version, if you've got the NASB, they really get it right here. Because they translate verse 1, Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. God was with him leading him around in the wilderness. Now, think about the Exodus. Why is that significant? How did Israel find their way around in the wilderness? God was there with them. His presence was with them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, leading them around, showing them where to go. Jesus experiences the same thing. We shouldn't picture him aimlessly wandering around out in the wilderness. No, he was led by the Spirit, God's very presence, just like the nation of Israel. So that's the third clue, direction. Location, duration, direction. Finally, designation. We're thinking about clues that we should read this passage as a reliving of Israel's experience. The last clue is the designation that both the nation of Israel and Jesus are called the Son of God. The nation of Israel is called the Son of God at the time of the Exodus. God said to Moses, you go tell Pharaoh. This is what I want you to say to Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is my son. And that same idea is repeated at Hosea 11. That quote 
about Moses talking to Pharaoh is from Exodus 3, where God calls Israel his son. Then we come to Luke 3, and we come to Luke 4, and we have this idea repeated over and over again. Remember, right after the baptism, you are my beloved son. And then we get the genealogy passage, which shows a direct connection between Jesus all the way to son of God, which is the closing verse of chapter 3. Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And then, of course, we get into the wilderness here where the repeated word to Jesus is, if you are the son of God. So we see how both the nation of Israel and Jesus are carrying that same designation out there in the wilderness as son of God, being led around by the Spirit for this period of time. It's what we see when we put everything together and why we can say with a high degree of certainty that that's how we should read the passage. As Jesus reliving this experience that national Israel had, okay? Now let's get to the temptations themselves. And this is where we'll begin to draw some points of practical application uh, for ourselves and for our lives. And I think the first thing that we need to say about these three temptations is that they weren't random, These aren't just random temptations that the devil came up with. We might wonder, look at this passage and think, why these particular temptations? Like, why no, why no ice cream? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> why were these chosen? We, we might wonder, why the absence of other kinds of temptations, especially sexual temptation? Why isn't that here? I mean, Israel had some really high-profile failings in that area. Those things are common to mankind as a whole. Why isn't that one of them? Why is it these three? Well, here's what we see. What we see here is that each of these temptations that Jesus faces mirrors a particular failure of Israel in those wilderness wanderings. They're each tied to a particular failure of the nation of Israel in the wilderness and highlights Jesus' ability to succeed where they failed. So they're not random. They mirror these particular failures of Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. When you think about the failures of Israel in the wilderness, which ones come to mind first? I know it's hard because there are so many. Whatever is coming to your mind now as you kind of tick back through Exodus and Numbers and think about those accounts, whatever's coming to your mind, I, I'm fairly sure that most of us aren't thinking about the failure of the leader, Moses. At least my mind tends to go to the corporate failures of the people as a whole, the grumbling and the, all the other things that we're going to get into. But it's really interesting that this first temptation of Jesus actually mirrors the failure of the leader, Moses. The great failure of Moses. The one incident that kept him out of the promised land. The famous, the infamous account of Moses striking the rock. Numbers 20. That's really a tough passage, isn't it? Isn't it? it, I'll just... I'll speak for myself. Sometimes it's really hard to believe that Moses was kept out of the promised land for that one incident. It must have been a pretty significant failure. 
and it was. If you're not familiar with the account, let's just rehearse it a little bit. This great failure of Moses in striking the rock. There's no water for anybody, no water for the people, no water for the livestock. They're out there wandering around in the wilderness with nothing to drink. It's a pretty big need. All the people are getting upset with Moses and Aaron, quarreling, lots of grumbling. And so Moses and Aaron, as they should, they take their needs and their concerns to God. The account says they got on their face before God and just say, what are we going to do? There's no water. The people are angry. We, we, have, no, we, we have nothing. What, what should we do? And God gives very specific, simple instructions. Take your staff. Go speak to the rock before their eyes and tell it to yield its water. Simple instructions. Guaranteed to work. God's word had not failed them. Take your staff, go speak to the rock before their eyes, tell it to yield its water. But, it's so easy to identify with. Remember, the people are so angry. Moses is frustrated when he gets up in front of the people with that staff in his hand. Remember, that staff with which he had done so many miracles already. He gets up there in front of them, so frustrated with them, and he said to them, this is Numbers 20, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then he struck the rock with his staff twice. And the water came out. Now, what is the great sin there? What is the great failure? It is this, that Moses in that moment relied on his own power, on what he knew he could do with his staff. He didn't do what God told him to do, and it still worked. That power was within him with his staff that he didn't have to obey and it still worked. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. In that moment, he placed all of his confidence. Think about where his confidence was. His confidence was not in what God said. His confidence was in what he knew he could do. So he gets up there and he does just whatever he wants. No consideration that he's not doing it in the prescribed way. He simply relies on his own power. And what we would have to imagine was a very fleshly moment, right? In the flesh, angry, frustrated, probably self-pity. Boom, I'm doing it. And that's precisely what Jesus is tempted to do, okay? In the flesh, needy. It's not to bring water from a rock, but bread from a stone. And he could have done it. He could have done it on his own strength with the power that was within him, but he refused. Moses' great failure was that 
He left God completely out of the equation. God was not necessary. God was not depended on. Jesus refuses to do any work that's not God-dependent and God-honoring. He's the one that does not operate according to the flesh. Even when his flesh is weak, he just shows himself so given to the Spirit's direction and the Spirit's power that he succeeds where Moses failed and where we so often fail. Let's talk about that. Has God given you gifts? Yes, he has. Can those gifts be exercised without dependence on God? Yes, they can. Can you even be successful and have some fruit to show for your efforts when you are exercising your gifts apart from dependence on God? Yes. Yes, you can. Can we go around striking rocks and get results? Absolutely, we can. Can we appear successful in front of people even while we're operating in our own flesh and not depending on God and not seeking his glory but trying to meet some need that we have? Yeah. Is any of our work in the realm of our gifts pleasing to God? Is it honoring to God? You know, sometimes it can be really difficult to tell because our hearts are so deceitful. Are we dependent on God in the use of our abilities? Are we honoring God in the use of our abilities? Are we sometimes operating in the flesh in front of people to fulfill our own fleshly desires? I suspect that we probably are. At least I know that I frequently am. But here's what we know, and here's what we celebrate, because all of that can be really hard to tell sometimes. If we're using our gifts in a God-dependent way, and honoring God instead of fulfilling a fleshly desire, here's what we know, even though that's hard to understand, here's what we know and celebrate, that Jesus did honor God, and he would not put his own gifts to use to fulfill some need that he had. His gifts were completely beholden and aimed at the glory of God alone. And that's who Moses should have been. And that's who I should have been. And that's who you should have been. But what Jesus' success in this area means is that our failures in this area to always uphold God's glory first with our gifts and powers, our failures in that area will not keep us out of the promised land like they did Moses. Because Jesus has succeeded and given God what God was due. He is our champion. And while we may go around operating the flesh and not giving God the glory that he deserves, Christ has done it on our behalf and it happens in Luke 4. Jesus didn't rely on his own power. 
It's verses 3 and 4. Second temptation, he doesn't worship a false god. He does not worship a false god. That's verses 5 through 8. Great glory is promised to him if he'll only worship the devil. Luke 4, 7. Now, what's the backdrop for that temptation? It's pretty easy to spot. I mean, if you had to name the greatest failure of the people of Israel in the wilderness, what would you say? Probably turn in your Bible to Exodus 32 and say, here you go. Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. He's up on the mountain. He's been gone a long time. Here's all our gold. Aaron, make us a God that we can see. So Aaron fashions a a calf out of gold, and the people worship it and sacrifice to it. They worship a false god, and this Jesus refuses to do. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He does not repeat the great sin of Moses, and he does not repeat the great sin of the people, the sin of idolatry. And we said a moment ago that it can be really hard for us to detect whether we're relying on ourselves when we use our gifts or we're relying on God. And where we can't see into those things, we trust in Jesus' victory. And I'd say it's a very similar ballgame here in this issue of idolatry because our our hearts are so inclined toward idolatry and we're so self-justifying that it's very hard for us to differentiate between what is a healthy interest in something And what is a sinful attachment to something? Is this hobby I have, is this interest I have, is this person that I'm interested in, is this this job or this ministry or this car or this lifestyle or this phone or this piece of technology, is it just a healthy interest or have I crossed the line into idolatry? I don't know. A lot of times we don't know. I just imagine that I'm a lot more idolatrous than I think I am. I don't always know what's a healthy attachment and what crosses the line. And we'll probably struggle with these things all the way to the grave, never knowing the degree to which we idolize other things and rob God of the attention and honor that our lives should have given to him. And so once again, we just fall at the feet of Jesus and simply say, where Israel failed and where I fail, he has succeeded. He would not bow down and worship a false god, even though he was promised everything. He was going to be given everything and everyone if he would simply worship someone, something that is not God. And he chose God. He chose God. This is our champion. We love him. He is our righteousness. He succeeded. He chose God. Isn't it hard in those moments to choose God over whatever that is that's tempting you and whatever you're tempted to idolatize? So hard. Jesus did it. He didn't rely on his own power. He didn't worship a false god. Finally, third temptation, he did not put God to the test. That's verses 9 through 12. He doesn't put God to the test. That that exact language, put
putting God to the test is, is found so many times in the scriptures in reference to what Israel was doing in the wilderness, okay? Like, in summary, they were putting God to the test. Find that language in Exodus 17, Psalm 106, Hebrews 3.8, just to name a few places in the most prominent places, that out there in the wilderness, the nation of Israel put God to the test. What does that mean? It means that instead of trusting in the character of God, they continually demanded demonstrations of his presence and his care. That's what it means for them to have put God to the test. Instead of trusting in his good character and knowing by faith that he would take care of them, they were always demanding demonstrations of his goodness and his care, usually in the form of food and water. For Jesus, the suggested test was protection if he jumps. That was the demanded demonstration that God really cares and that God's really good. If God is really with you, and if he's still with you, if he really cares for you, he will protect you when you jump off this spot. Make him demonstrate it if he's really good and if he really cares. with something that you can see. And where the people of Israel failed, Jesus succeeded because he did not demand a physical demonstration from God. He knew and he trusted in the character of God. He did not demand a demonstration as the basis for his confidence. He maintained his faith in God. It's precisely where the people failed and where we may be likely to fail as well. And let's just talk about what Jesus' success in this area means for us. And I want to press this home, particularly to those of you who have gone through or are going through something that is so hard and so painful that it has caused you to doubt the goodness and maybe even the existence of God. Because how could God really be there and how could he be good if I'm going through this and if he's allowed this to happen? When you go through something like that, that can make it very, very difficult to maintain faith in a good and caring God. And you may love Jesus and want so badly to maintain a life of faith and be a worshiper. That may be the desire of your heart, but you just can't. You're not there because of what you have gone through or what you are going through. And what I want to say to you, if that is you, is just as we have done through the other two examples, look to Jesus as your champion. You who cannot right now believe in a good, caring, or even existent God, look to Jesus as your champion. 
He is the one who could, who was able to trust God through everything, seeing no sign of God's provision or goodness. Not demanding a a sign that God was good or caring. He could have faith in God. And he did have faith in God. Even through his worst moments of suffering and forsakenness on the cross, he continued to entrust himself and believe in the goodness of God. His faith did not waver even when the goodness of God seemed the farthest away. So, where humans fail in trust, Jesus has succeeded. He has won that victory for us. And that's why I say to you, entrust yourself to Jesus, especially you, who are struggling to have faith in a good God. He is strong where we are weak, and he does what we can't do. And I just say to you, run to him and believe in him. He is your champion and your savior. And his trust in God is steadfast. He did not go into the wilderness to win those victories for himself. He went there to win them for us because we had failed and were without hope. So he retraces the steps and turns each failure into a success. God is honored and God is satisfied. Finally, the two things that it means for us, okay? We've talked about what the passage is not. It's not a how-to manual. We've talked about what it is. Jesus reliving the wilderness experience of Israel, succeeding where they failed. What it means for us, two things. First of all, we celebrate and we rely on the success of Jesus. We both celebrate his success and rely on his success. How he has been everything that we should have been. And more than that, we rely on his life for our acceptance before God. When we place our faith in him, his victories become ours. And his acceptance before God becomes ours. All of my hope, let me tell you, when I die, all of my hope of acceptance before God is tied up in these 40 days of the wilderness and in those six hours on the cross and in those three days in the tomb. That is where Jesus won the victory over the devil, over sin, and over the grave. And all of our hope is tied up in those victories. We place our faith in him and rely on his success. Secondly, we receive him as our true king. We're talking about the kingdom of God. That's the theme we're exploring through this whole book. Every kingdom has a king, and we receive him, this one. Here he is. This is the one. He is our king, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of God. He is the one. He is the king of this kingdom. Here's the last thing, okay? And then we're going. We're going to go home. But here's the last thing. This is the New Testament version of David versus Goliath. This is the David versus Goliath in the New Testament. You remember that all Israel was too scared, too weak to go out there and confront Goliath. And so, who steps up? This young man from Bethlehem. 
This young man from Bethlehem steps up to meet him, trusting only in the name of the Lord, and he wins the great victory for his people. Trusting only in God. And he'd been anointed as king earlier. Samuel had anointed him earlier, but now he shows himself the true king by his victory over the enemy. So it is with Jesus here. He confronts the great enemy out there that none of us are equipped to battle. This young man from Bethlehem, he steps up to meet him, trusting only in the name of the Lord, and wins the great victory for his people. He'd been anointed king earlier by angel announcement and at his baptism, but now he demonstrates himself as king with his great victory. And his victory is greater than David's because he didn't just defeat the enemy of Israel. Jesus defeated the enemy of all mankind. And so he is king of all mankind. And he goes home, according to verse 15, being glorified by all, just as David went home in great glory. Now, you know that what came next for David was opposition to his kingship. David's life was a life of continual opposition to his rightful kingship, and so it will be with Jesus. And we'll see that start to happen next Sunday as we get into his ministry, specifically his ministry in Nazareth. We'll begin to see the king opposed. But today, today we celebrate his success that he has won the victory for us. Jesus, our champion, the boy from Bethlehem. David's greater son defeats the greater enemy for his people. He is our king forever and ever. Amen. Father, we confess that Jesus did it all. All we can do is bow down before him and say, we trust in him. He won. We are weak. He is strong. And I, I ask, Father, that the, the truth of these things would be impressed upon the hearts of those who just have never known what this is all about. Someone listening today that thinks that Christianity is about being good so that God will accept us. No, no, no. Understand today in your heart everyone listening, that only Christ could be good enough to please God, and he has been. And that by placing our faith in him, simple trust, simply looking to him and believing in his name secures all of the righteousness that we could ever need before God. Jesus' life becomes ours. And we're acceptable before God because of his success and his victory. And we rest in him. Holy Spirit, impress the truth of these things upon our hearts, we pray. And let our hearts be at rest in Jesus' success. We ask in his wonderful name. Amen.